0: The Healthy Golf Podcast, Episode 8, with Emily Wigan. Welcome to the Healthy Golf Podcast, a podcast designed to help you transform your golf game and your life. Join your host, Dr. Joe O, as he chats with experts on all things golf performance to keep you feeling great and playing your best on and off the course. Welcome to the Healthy Golf Podcast. And today we are talking with doctor of chiropractic uh, and yoga instructor, Emily Wiggin. Emily, great to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Excellent. Um, We'll just get right into it. Why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself and kind of your experience working with golfers?
1: Uh, so, yeah, my uh, history of working with golfers actually uh, hilariously. It wasn't because I was a junior competitor golfer myself, which most people are. Um, I was uh, I worked at a, 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 my college job when I was like 1920 was at a golf course. Uh, and and that's when I really got exposed to the sport and was just became immediately obsessed. Uh, and uh, I have an athletic background myself. I played varsity volleyball. Uh, So kind of good transition just to jump into another sport. Um, But uh, when I went into chiropractic school, eventually, um, I was basically a biomechanics nerd, love the physics of the human body, um, as it pertains to any sport and development and trying to better better that, that athlete's potential, um, from that standpoint. Um, but golf was always my favorite and, and then that's what it was drawn to. So, um, it was a very natural transition to graduate, uh, from chiropractic school in 2013. Uh, and I went and I took my Titleist performance, uh, certification, um, in, uh, Carlsbad, uh, California in 2014. Um, and that was kind of the start of it. Um, Basically from there, I was I was the first I'm on the east coast of Canada. So I was the First person in in my province, which I guess would be like same as your guys' states, <laughs> uh, in my province to be a T- TPI certified. Um, so it was a really like great time for me to jump in. So I uh, I connected with the technical director of the the Nova Scotia Golf Association, uh, who uh, who then subsequently brought me on uh, with the the Junior Provincial team, and I've been working with them since. But also working with a lot of uh, you know anyone from the the weekend golfer to the conditional tour status uh canadian golfer uh, just huge range of, of of golfers but just i love all things uh golf fitness and wellness
0: nice that's pretty awesome i mean going straight from chiropractic to tpi do you just have your level one tpi or you have some extras or
1: i have my level i actually have my level one uh, my level two medical and my level two fitness Uh, i'm actually paid for and scheduled to do my level three in the last weekend of august however there's a little bit of a pandemic situation that uh i don't even know if international travel is going to be allowed at that point probably not so it's, it's probably going to have to be postponed but i did also do um uh there used to be a company uh called pro golf uh health uh with um are you familiar with uh shane lawler who's a he's a he's a chiropractor in um ireland but he nice. treats. Treated like Patrick Harrington. Anyways, he used to be part of this company, but uh, they basically treated like a bunch of tour players. Uh, And I did a course with one of their members as well called Pro Golf Help, which kind of brought the DNS side of things to the table, which TPI I find doesn't get so much into the DNS stuff. Uh, So there's a few other things I've bounced around in, but um, the TPI level one and two has been my main focus, hoping to get that level three.
0: Yeah, let's hope that you can get out there. I know they postponed the World Golf Fitness Summit that's in October. Mm, yeah. Uh, unfortunate. Yeah. Hopefully you get out there. And yes, I, I have heard of Shane. I'd be interested to hear more about that DNS course. Um,
1: he, in that he instructs DNS and ART, but he's a, he's an incredible wealth of knowledge. I did a webinar with him re- recently and he's like, you know, just one of those people who has a paper, a research paper for everything. So um, yeah, he knows this. He knows this stuff. I would highly recommend connecting. Uh, Because him and Dr. Harry Sesse uh, of Golf Latica do golf therapy seminars where they basically take their education as far as TPI, DNS, and all their various other disciplines and pull it together uh, for one course, which makes it more, almost more applicable in like a a well-rounded sense rather than just coming from like one aspect. And then they've got all their experience on tour.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check that out then. Yeah. But let's talk a little bit more about juniors that's kind of what we want to talk about today you were it sounds like you went right into once you contacted your provinces uh golf association or whatever it was um and you started working essentially right with the juniors
1: yeah no i uh i, I did get very lucky in that sense of, of being able to dive in but You know, also, I was such a a rookie, too, because you're just I was like thrown right into it. I was like, just got the certification. Here we go. But, you know, I've learned a lot since, Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things to manage when it comes to juniors because you're dealing with, um, you know, it's their their understanding and their emphasis and importance as far as physical health goes is not as weighted as somebody who has a lot of biomechanical concerns because they're older and they have a lot of age related injuries or, you know, functional movement deficits. Cause you know, as far as, you know, what it being teenagers like uh, you know, so a big part of what I have to do with them is like inspiring them to be motivated on the fitness side of things. So because I was also one of the first TPIs out here, we, Nova Scotia had been kind of behind the curve as far as that cultural shift to golf fitness. So if you look at British Columbia, uh, you know, people like Jason Glass have built this incredible culture of junior development where they're like in the gym multiple times a week and they seem to look happy to do it <laughs> but uh and so we had to first start with that cultural shift and really making them understand like why this is this is important um so it, it's come a long way but uh and it definitely took to also developing relationships with these kids where they trust me and respect me enough to then, you know, follow my recommendations as far as like what we were going to do in training sessions and then what their homework was. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit of an uphill battle at the beginning, but it's, it's paid off big time. And, you know, we work with some absolutely fantastic kids and just want to keep moving it forward.
0: I think one thing that would be great for a lot of people to hear is, um, Juniors are a special population. They're not just smaller adults, essentially.
1: No, absolutely. They're
0: different than adults. Can you go into uh, some of those kind of characteristics that make you know, juniors different than adults?
1: Well, I mean, from a training standpoint, first of all, uh, a lot of people, or not a lot of people, is it for the, re- the research for a long time had people Moving away from actual outright strength training until they had reached those puberty years, because if you think of the androgens and uh, the hormone changes at that point in time, um, but strength isn't just uh, hypertrophy; it's not just increasing muscle fiber size, which is a which you can't really achieve a whole lot of, you know, pre-puberty. So, um, getting it, it, people have to understand that you can still work strength with juniors who like pre-puberty, it just has to be different than adults. It's not, you're not going to send a 10 year old in to do dead heavy deadlifts and heavy squats. And uh, it's more so going to be focused on sprinting, plyometrics um, things that are going to condition those type two fibers. Um, I might, I definitely do deadlifts as a functional movement um, because it's so important to develop uh, those those fundamental movement skills, even from from age two, is when you're really starting to develop those skills. Uh, you know, all the way up to your your puberty years, you, it's a key window where kids need to learn how to move and have the capacity to move well. But then once they get in, in into um, Puberty is when you really start to, to add load, but you can add load more safely and more like build capacity in a way that's more effective than if you just didn't even bother dealing with the kids prior to getting to that point. So when you look at a kid versus an adult, uh, physiologically, you know, I look at, I'm like, okay, we got to do fast things, whether it's, you know, we might have like kickboxing pads or where they just are doing really quick punches um, or, you uh, uh you know, uh, shaft swings that doesn't have a, a club on the end, all things that are going to condition condition those fibers, because I believe it's from ages uh, between ages six and eight and then 10 and 12. There's like a huge neural like development that just, you don't see it at that capacity later in your life and you have to capitalize on it. So doing all of those fast things, getting those fundamental movement skills, um, all super important, but not so much concerned about heavy, heavy weight training, definitely some weight training for sure. Um, But you're not, it it just isn't the same um, hormonal driven exercise patterns that you're trying to get out of an an, an adult. Uh, And then on top of that, personalities of juniors and adults are two entirely different things you're dealing with hormonal kids that are going through a ton of transition not only growth and mentally uh or sorry uh, growth wise but mentally and and just you know what's going on in their daily lives uh uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I, think I'm blessed with, you know, having that view of, I am a parent, uh, and you do get to see the, the meltdowns and the ups and the downs, because you have to be able to, to not take anything personally with, you know, how they might be behaving and, uh, and just channel that energy into something positive. Uh, so that in a nutshell, even though it wasn't really a nutshell, cause I just went on forever, uh, would be kind of what I would look at as far as like initial differences between the two.
0: I think one of the big things there, at least, even when I first started practicing, and I remember hearing when I was younger, um, was that you know when you're strength training or or training kids, just in general, like you shouldn't do shouldn't do weight stuff because Mm -hmm. it's not good. It's going to stunt their growth, which has obviously been proven to not be true. Yes. Um, But everything that I have seen now, it seems like um, if you're working with juniors or anything like that, you should do kind of the opposite of what you would do with adults where you would want to get strength first and then build upon the speed, just kind of the opposite where you want to build the speed first and then the strength. Um, obviously there's a, uh, a continuum of both things happening at the same time, but it seems like it's just the opposite.
1: Um, Um, there is a, I don't know if you read, uh, there's a, an article put out by, uh, man, last name, I believe is Cawdry. Um, so there was, for years and years and years, we went by the uh, the long-term athletic developmental model, as far as. Um how we train athletes but the problem with it initially was it trained them according to chronological age which we know kids have a a different biological age and they have their spurts at different times so then they modified that model to have uh to incorporate peak weight velocity and peak height velocity to make it a little bit more uh focused around those biological changes um but what's cool about this article um I'll send it to you um, is they basically develop their own model uh, called the youth physical development uh, model. And it takes into account um uh, individualization, like not even like so much more individualization when dealing with athletes as far as like monitoring weight and height over a six month period. Um, but also, uh, they pointed out that in the long term athletic developmental model, uh, they, they focus like there's these detrimental windows that if you, if you don't you'd get this like two year period of training. Um, the kid's basically not going to be able to develop the speed and training principles, but they, they said, you know, there's still this capacity over their entire childhood, entire childhood rather than these these peak years. Yes. There's peak years that are more, they're going to have an increased sensitivity to needing that type of tra- training, but really they can get agility, speed, um, and, and even strength uh, through their entire childhood. Um, so it, it does open up the door a little bit to make it a little bit less stringent. Um, and it's more based on evidence, like base research rather than like empirical theoretical studies. Um, so I'll fire that your way after it's a, it's a really good, uh, thing to model
0: like junior cool. programs. Yeah, that'd, be, that'd be great to look at. Yeah. Um, why don't we go into, um, you talked a little bit about the differences of obviously even like prepubescent kids and then you know post puberty obviously there's differences there but how about we go into differences between um even junior boys and junior girls cuz there's uh, there's a difference between those two as well and then again obviously well, the girls good. there's a difference between before before uh menarche and then after, after menarche too right so yeah.
1: um so up until menarche the um Uh, it basically just it's like you can actually train them the same but you have to shift it by about two years Um, so you you have the girls going through stages uh, the same stages as the boys but a little bit like two years earlier just because that's how the growth spurts kind of fall Um, the Biggest focus for me with my junior girls, whereas right now my junior girls are between 12 and 18 um, is actually those considerations around uh around their menstrual cycles. Um, so with boys, you don't have to say, hey, when's that time of the month for you? Uh with girls, you know, there's super, super important things to consider. One, you know, men's set aside, women and, and girls tend to be more hypermobile, tend to have more ligament laxity in general. Um, sometimes you just watch even some of the young girls swings and you're like, how are your joints getting to that range? It's just insane. They're like Gumby. Um, so especially when you're looking around, um, you know, ovulation as a time that you don't really want to be loading them up. Uh, because that's when they're most susceptible to injury, ACLs, uh, ankle sprains, all that stuff. Uh, and then, so we we have to kind of keep their cycles into account. But it, it's kind of funny when you do ask a, a female junior athlete when they're period, they're just like, why are you asking me this? But then I just, I, I'm blessed with being a female, so it's more comfortable. And then I also just kind of launch into the explanation about how well, you know, I'm going to stage your training differently. Um, as far as you know, the, the prepubescent, they're doing a lot of the same things. Cause even with that two year shift, again, the focus is neuroplasticity. So they're both still doing sprints. They're both still doing plyometrics. Um, you just know that there's going to be a little bit of a difference between their peak height, velocity, peak weight, all that stuff. Um, that you could kind of stage things a little bit more specifically around
0: okay um what what are some of the differences that you find just in training uh or working with boys and girls because obviously um i feel like being and working with younger boys they kind of just don't care a lot of times but girls do care certain things right if you're especially if you're maybe working in a group setting um i don't know if you do that or not if you just do individual setting
1: no we definitely we do group we have like uh we have like a a team of 16 like what we call elite you know, juniors, um, that I do weekly sessions with, um, but I do them in, in groups of four. Um, it's very interesting. The dynamic really changes week to week. Uh, we've had to instrument a no phones policy, <laughs> uh, teenagers, and, um, it, it, it really depends. So I have noticed that The kids, regardless of if they're a boy or a girl, if they are involved in other high-level athletics, hockey, soccer, we have a lot of multi-sport athletes. uh, They are the ones who hunker down the best and do exactly what is asked of them. Don't have to ask twice and just bear down and and do it. Um, I find that the kids who... Uh, if golf has been their only activity, especially where golf isn't usually centered around fitness early on, um, it's, it is a little bit more of a, a learning curve, uh, not only from um, just a listening and taking in information, but uh, functional movements like you'll, you'll see these kids who have never done any other sport in their life. And, and and then you get them to do something, you know, um, that's not an actual golf swing, but it's golf exercises. And the coordination is just like, you're like, wow, how do you, how do you swing a golf club? <laughs> uh, so it's a it's a real um a real mix as far as as what you end up seeing on either side, but these kids who are multi sport, I can't speak highly enough of of being a multi sport athlete as a kid. Not only does it give you time management, discipline, but the fitness, the coordination, the motor skills. Like that that girl I was telling you about before we went live at Gardner Webb, uh, top javelin thrower in the province, went to Canada Games for tennis and golf at the same time, and also got a huge scholarship academically. So there's just, it's amazing, really, really something.
0: Yeah, I think definitely there's something to be said about multi-sport athletes, especially growing up and the importance of, you know, not specializing too soon. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not, I feel like I hear that and see that all the time, but I'm also paying attention to this and I'm also in this sphere. Um, I would say that one of the, I mean, we see it all the time with all these professional athletes who are amazing, right? Like Bron James, Michael Jordan, Um, they all played different sports growing up. I think it's definitely helpful to be maybe at least when it comes to golf somewhere in Canada or somewhere where there's definitely seasonal change. Right. Because that kind of forces you to have an off season and participate in a different kind of sport. Whereas, you know, like California or Florida, where it's pretty much warm all the time and you can play year round that, you know, People are just usually baseball players and golfers come out of those areas because that's what they can do exactly. uh, all the time. Can you maybe go into, I mean, again, I know we know this, but maybe anyone who's listening, the importance of kind of differentiating sports as a, as a youth athlete.
1: Um, Different. Do you mean like uh, just how important it is to be in different sports? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, one thing about if you're just, one sport it's the same as if you do the same say you go to the gym and you do the same workout program every single day you're training the same fibers the same muscle groups in the same patterns constantly um but even if you're a rotational athlete so like um the one i was referring to the javelin and the tennis even though she's rotational, she's still doing it in different planes of motion. Uh, And then also like the, you know, the tennis would give her some rotation in the opposite direction as well. Um, So I I think it's just the fact that the more planes of motion that you can train um, the more, you know, functional you're making your body overall and, and, in the sense of also being very resistant to injury um because we get you know where i see the kids who have you know way too much side bend and they're hypermobile and blah blah blah. like in golf they don't tend to be the ones who have been in a whole bunch of other sports that would you know um have different aspects of training their core and their stability uh it's, it's very it's like one dimensional um, you know they're it it, it, the science is ever evolving on that front so it'll be interesting to see kind of where it goes over time like I totally recognize that once you hit you know age 15 people have to become very sport specific but you know you look at Jordan Spieth who is an exceptional baseball player and uh, basketball player I know he hasn't didn't have a great season last year but uh, you know what I mean like there, there there is something to be said for just I mean do have we heard of him being injured it just i think from even just longevity of career not even just a skill set uh i think that you're you're opening yourself up to a lot of um uh really unique possibilities just by by being able to be strong and stable from doing so many different things
0: perfect i don't think i could have said it better
1: (laughs) yeah i was like i hope i'm i hope i'm
0: You had mentioned a, a few times now today, um, hypermobility yeah. typically, typically occurs in kids, especially younger girls. Um, I know that we know what to do with most of those athletes, but for anyone who's listening or maybe has a kid, who's a junior golfer that is working out or wants them to, you know, start working out or something along those lines. One, I would say, first of all, find a professional and get I'm assessed sure. first of all. Um, but can you go into the importance of what you would want to do for someone who's hypermobile, um, especially as a junior, and then maybe give some sort of ideas on for for those people.
1: Um, so first of all, I would want to look at. So, I mean, just a, a quick screen for people is maybe to look up or Google the bite and scale of hypermobility. Super quick resource. Anybody could do it like your average Joe could just figure out how to how to do it. It's basically some joint mobility testing that overall you figure out uh you know if your your ranges are a little bit beyond what is is the norm um so google bite and scale of hypermobility um the biggest the one thing that i really find funny about um hypermobile females because usually the females um is they're somehow all drawn to yoga so you've got all of these hypermobile females that are drawn to something that's mobility based. Like don't get me wrong. There's a lot of core stuff in yoga if done right, but often you have people pushing themselves into the extreme ranges. So my biggest piece of advice would be to stay away from the things that are going to push your joints to the end range limits. That's the last thing you need to do. It's going to cause actually more facilitations of your muscles, trying to guard those areas and to stabilize, which will put you up for more injury. Um, But to focus just on, you know, core stability, uh, weight training, um, anything that's actually focused around, like even like tightening things up. Um, so I, I love to see, you know, my mo- mobility, uh, or my hypermobile females work with a personal trainer who's eventually going to get them into like pretty solid deadlifts and pretty solid squats, but in a appropriately staged program where they're doing what I call like prehab at the beginning, where you're just trying to get that that general, um, control of rotation, whether it be, uh, bird dogs or cyborges or, um, dead bugs, like those kind of type exercises, um, control of their diaphragmatic breathing, like everything that would, you know, start at a very basic level and build onto that so that they can actually get into quite a good capacity for, for managing load. Um, but stay away from the stretching endlessly and the yin yoga and the, you know, I guess you can do Pilates to a degree, but again, it has to be in, in total moderation. Now I do yoga and I'm actually the hypermobile athlete, but I dial down every pose because of what I do for a living. Um, and a, a huge component of my, my working out, like I never would fully just be yoga, fully hyper mobility training, A huge component of what I do for myself is just, you know, core stability, weights, that kind of stuff. So just. Basically, just don't push your joints beyond end range and, and absolutely work with a medical professional because hypermobilities can open up people to more injuries than joint restrictions for sure.
0: Yeah, I've, I've seen so many people that come into the clinic and they say that they're tight or these different things. And it's always the hamstrings. The hamstrings are always tight and you check their hamstring and they're like ready to put their leg behind their head "Mm, i don't think your hamstrings are tight and i think you know the main thing there is a lot of people don't realize that your your nerves are what's telling you are tight for the most part they're they're saying don't keep stretching me because we're not going to like this and that's why you get this tight sensation but that's an even bigger rabbit hole that we're not going to really go down um, right now Um, but I think the other big aspect that working with juniors is you not only work with juniors, but you also work with their parents. Um, so how, how is that aspect of working with their parents? And obviously we know that there could be a continuum of, you know, very relaxed parents to very overbearing parents. So how do you, how do you navigate those waters?
1: Um, so I, uh... What's really great about my role, and I completely forgot to mention this, and he'll be like shocked that I forgot about this. My spouse is the is the coach of the provincial team. So when I was brought on to the provincial team, uh, we, that's how we met, and now you know we're together, have a family, blah blah blah. And so he is like the highest level uh, PGA coach here. So I have the beautiful ability to be able to basically make him handle the majority of the parental concerns because he's the coach. Um, But as far as what I do, I've been very lucky. Like I, I, you know, a lot of uh, parents, if you just spend the time educating them on the on the fitness end of things, I mean, they may not take it seriously, but no one's ever given me flack for it. Um, as long as you have evidence to, to substantiate why you're doing something with with their kid, they're generally pretty pretty reasonable. So, I mean, we definitely have had helicopter parents before, but. I personally have not had to, to deal with it myself, but from a coaching standpoint, like if you, I don't know if you've had someone on your podcast yet that, uh, is like works a lot with juniors as a, as a PGA professional, but that is a question I would definitely ask them because they deal with it very frequently.
0: Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll have to talk about getting your husband on here and then
1: I can ask
0: him him (laughs) straight up. Um, but yeah. yeah, I just know that that's a big that's a big aspect, and I know at least working with kids in the clinic, that it's usually not a big deal. Obviously, they want their usually when they come see me, their kids in pain. Yes, they want their kid to feel better, right? So, but you could tell that there's a difference between some parents who want their kid to be, you know, more independent. And yeah, and versus the parent who says everything for the kid while they're sitting right there in front of me. I'm like, but. Mm, can we, can we let your kid talk maybe a little bit?
1: Um, I, on that end, one, I would say the biggest problem I've had is they parent always comes to me with their kid when their kid is in pain. Like I see them in a group setting and tell them they should all come see me individually. So I can give them something a bit more individualized outside of our group settings, but the parents don't bring them to me until the kid has hurt themselves until they're in pain. Then during my educational process, I'm explaining that, you know, okay, once they're out of pain, it doesn't mean that they're functional. It just means that the inflammation has died down, that their source of pain isn't as noticeable. I need to continue working with this person to make them competent in movement, build their capacity, all that stuff. Um, And I always give this speech, but parents in the moment seem to grasp that. But then when their kid is out of pain, that's when they kind of just go back into their routine. So, um, I, you know, it, it is, it's, I never, I need mean, something I'll probably get better at as a practitioner myself, as far as growth, being able to make them understand why it's important to work with them over a longer term, uh, as far as not only just injury Uh, preventing injury but you know improving the mechanics of their game and 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 building a body that is designed to withstand the forces they're putting through it but right now it's very much a a reactive kind of uh sought out intervention i would say
0: i think that's the big that's a big issue with most of the health health world now i mean maybe this pandemic will change some of that potentially um but Everything is reactive, exactly like you said. We all wait, not not everybody, but most people wait until something bad happens, then they go seek kind of care or treatment for that, whereas maybe if they were proactive, they could have potentially prevented that or reduced how intense their issue is, um, which hopefully at some point that will change. Um, I know at least in in the States here, most most people use insurance, and insurance doesn't really care too much about being proactive. They care about more on the reactive side of things.
1: And it, you know, so it's not unique to golf and athletic performance. uh, And I would say here, just even even demographically, um, the amount of money people are willing to put into a high performance program here compared to the amount of money people put into a high performance program in Ontario, uh, which is like central Canada is is different. Like we're just, we're just dealing with different areas, different demographics, different, um, you know economics in this pro uh, within this province, but we're also one thing that's up against us. We're also in a funding problem. Um, so because there's the bulk of the you know a huge huge population in Ontario and Toronto, Team Ontario gets an enormous amount of funding. So the resources that are available to those kids, uh, as far as their um, their training sessions and their facilities and all that stuff, um, is a lot is a lot more than here. That being said, we have done an exceptional amount ima- exceptionally well with what we have. Because if you look at the amount of athletes that come out of here and get these unbelievable scholarships, it's it's really exciting. Um, so it you know, it does speak to the quality of the, the professionals we have around here. Um, but it would be really nice to have the, the funding and the resources to to take it that step further.
0: Well, it sounds like you guys are doing something right. So hopefully if you continue to just produce results that uh, whoever the governing body is in Canada that controls those things, will start to realize, you know, maybe make some changes for that.
1: I hope so. We got, we got one kid going to Notre Dame in uh, a couple of years on a, on a good scholarship. So we're just, we just want to keep seeing things going in that direction. it has been really exciting.
0: It's amazing. Um, Why don't you go ahead and just give, um, everyone, just a little bit, last piece of advice, whatever that may be. Um, you can put it towards juniors or whomever really, but one last piece of advice, I guess, with working with juniors, whether that's a parent, if a junior's listening to this, I don't know if juniors listen to podcasts, um, um, but or like a PGA coach or whoever.
1: Um, I would say uh, work with a team. Always. Uh, we have what's called for Team Canada, they have what's referred to, and maybe, maybe that's what they call their you know, um, teams in, in the US, but it's called an integrated support team. Uh, and it's made up of fitness coaches, medical professionals, physios, chiros, uh, and then the golf pros. If you look at every golfer and what their needs are, it's basically a pie chart. And it's not going to be all golf swing and technique. There's going to be functional movement. There's going to be addressing limitations. Um, There's going to be the mental performance side. I forgot to mention that mental performance, absolutely huge. Um, You need that multifaceted approach to create a well-rounded athlete from start to finish. It just, there is no other way. And with the, I mean, you got to look at. There's only 150 players ish on tour. You're competing against other sports like the NHL that allows for 600. Um, it is when when you're looking at a pool of athletes that is so much smaller. The competition is so much more fierce, and they have every resource available to them. Um, so starting with that team approach from as early on as you can, and in a way that makes sense financially. um, And, you know, time wise, you don't want your kid to not have fun. Um, It really is going to give you the best result and, and finding a team that communicates with one another uh, and can align their goals with what your junior wants to achieve and what you want to, you know, work with your kid to achieve is, is really, that's the best. That's it. You just got to have that team approach.
0: Right, that's perfect. I mean, like you said, when when you're competing for, I think it's 125 spots on tour, or at least on tour, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, your your chances are so low potentially, right, to to even get to that. And then, unfortunately, your golf swing is is going to take you really far away. That's what you're using, but that's you're looking for those 0.01 percent differences to make it. um, The golf swing is not going to be the only thing that takes you there, and you need a team to 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 get you to that goal basically
1: and as a, a frightening statistic and it was actually i think it was ian leggett who uh who played on tour in canada he said uh, i mean this isn't his stat it's from research but if you're not hitting as a a male if you're not hitting 300 yards by age 17 uh you're likely not going to hit it so or hit it consistently so it just shows you how on point training has to be from an early age, it's not something you hop on. I mean, there's obviously exceptions, but you don't hop on it late uh, as far as the bandwagon goes. But uh, I've seen some amazing things come from some amazing teams across the country. And, uh, you know, it just always keep your eyes open and And social media, media is a beautiful thing with being able to to meet different professionals, observe how people run their programs. And so I always just tell people be well-researched and, uh, you'll see what kind of opportunities are there as far as uh, development.
0: Excellent. Well, before we wrap it up completely, um, we just have some fun questions here at the end. Awesome. Um, so what is the best course that you've ever played?
1: Oh, okay. Have you heard of Cabot Links and Cabot Cliffs? in Nova Scotia. I believe they are both top 30 in the world. One might even be top 10. Uh, Looks like a piece of Southern Ireland just broke off and floated into Nova Scotia. It's just, I I can't, it's out of this world. I didn't even care what I was shooting that day because the winds were so strong that I could, I had to lay my bag down on the ground. (laughs) There was no way it would stand up, but I didn't even care. Beautiful. Cabot links, Cabot cliffs, absolute paradise.
0: That's that's the I think one of the best things is that a lot of times when you're on a beautiful course like that it doesn't even matter how you play. Obviously, if you play better, that's just a plus. But sometimes just taking in in the nature is is amazing.
1: And it's, uh, Cape Breton has a beautiful local culture, wonderful people, and uh, the facilities and the restaurants and the the accommodations are top notch. Everyone should go.
0: Awesome. Uh, second question is. You have a risky approach shot to the green. Are you going for it or laying up? Oh,
1: is there a water hazard in front?
0: <laughs> let's say yes.
1: How if I lay up? How far from the green does it put me?
0: Um, if you lay up, let's say another 20 yards to the front of the green.
1: Okay. I would I would probably lay up. I'm really bad with hitting greens with water hazards in front. I'm also just if a risky shot in general going for the green. It would be, uh, I mean, I, I'll take it if there's not a blatant hazard there, but hazards change everything for me.
0: Okay. And then you're going to go out for a round. Who is in your dream foursome?
1: Oh man. Can we just assume that I'm like A one handicap if I'm playing with this this dream. (laughs) Sure, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it could
0: be anybody, it doesn't have to be.
1: Okay. Um, Ricky Fowler seems like amazing. Lori Kane, amazing Canadian golfer. Uh super nice human. And what would be my last one? Tiger Woods is too scary. Can't be (laughs) tiger. Uh you know what? I think uh Tony now. I'm I think Tony Fino seems like a fun dude to play with.
0: He seems like a fun guy to play with. Um and Ricky yeah. Fowler. Ricky Fowler seems totally fun to play with. Yeah. Um if if at any point ever got to play with just their their group of friends between Ricky Fowler and Justin Thomas and Smiley, uh, that just seems absurd
1: but so much fun. I, but I feel like if I played with someone like Tiger Woods, I would just be terrified the whole time and probably leave crying.
0: (laughs) That's very possible. Very possible.
1: But I love watching them play. Um,
0: Where can uh, people reach you at to, if they want to talk with you more or, you know, work with you or get in contact with you where, where's, where's, what's the best place?
1: Um, I, if I, if I type into the live comments of it'll just put up my email, right?
0: Um, yeah. that's a good question. I'm not sure. Oh, if no, will, no. But we can, okay. you can do it afterwards.
1: So, uh, yeah, I can comment after, but I'd say just go to my Instagram page, Dr. Emily Wigan. Uh, it's, uh, super easy to direct message me. Um, uh, my email is on there. Um, but th- that would probably be the, the go-to as far as getting in touch with me.
0: Okay, great. And yeah. then I'll get all that posted into the show notes as well. So if anyone wants to, to just go straight from the podcast, they can they can click on the link and hopefully it'll take them right there. Awesome. Um, but thank you so much for spending time and sharing your knowledge with everyone. It was great to, again, finally meet you at least via electronically and to chat with you.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm a bit of a chatty Kathy, so. that's perfect. (laughs) Well, super nice to meet you, Joe. And uh, I wish you the best on your your golf endeavors as far as the the industry goes.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Emily is such a great resource when it comes to training and working with junior golfers. If anyone has any questions when it comes to that topic, please reach out to her. And I know that she'd be more than willing to help you out. Again, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, I appreciate you downloading and listening to these episodes, especially when there are so many other things that you can choose from in this day and age. We'll catch you on next week's episode. Keep working on getting 1% better every day, because when you feel great, you go for it.